life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Snow Files, Season 3, Episode 40, The Twin Blue Line. Isaac Gaston, Alternative Suspect. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. I was coming out of my parents' bedroom. And I was walking into a living room, and I do not remember where we went um, before this, but uh, it was at night, and I don't remember why I walked in the living room, and when I was walking back towards our kitchen, there was a man, tall man, standing, leaning against our threshold, staring at me, and it, it, it shocked me, and I said, hey, dude, who are you? And I, I remember, I never remember, I'll never forget the name Scott. Um, and in the brief few seconds that we interacted with each other, I will never remember the, I'll never forget the, um, it was a toboggan that he was wearing, um, like a large trench coat. It almost seemed like he was dressed like he was homeless. Um, and the floor around him was wet. It was like he, he literally stepped out of a pool um, and just dripping wet all over the, the carpet. And he was covered in blood and he had several. I could I could not figure out if they were stab wounds or bullet holes. And I was too young to really understand what was going on. But um, the older I got and the more I talked to my mother, uh, I figured out that they were the more I thought about it, they were stab wounds. Um, he had three or four of them in his, uh, he had two in his chest, two in his gut. Um, and after saying Scott, uh, I was shocked. And in the blink of an eye, he was gone. What happened at Braley Pond? Episode three, the energy around us is now available. Download today on your favorite podcast player. We hope you are as excited as we are about Snow Files Season 3. The forensics episodes aren't for everyone, but we really needed to make all of the testing issues, or lack of testing issues, part of the podcast, so everyone will be fully aware and even be able to refer back if you have any questions about these issues. I think we can say with full confidence, once again, why not test the DNA? As we move into our final season of Snow Files, there are a few things we'd like to cover to make the record complete, one of which is alternative suspects. It's a sensitive topic, and we must include the caveat that the people we name have not been charged with this crime. We even hesitate to call them alternative suspects, but we can't think of a more suitable label. These men are a sundry mix, some with extensive violent criminal histories, some who have been involved in prior armed robberies, and some who just came to our attention through FOIA requests. What they all have in common, though, is that they were not presented as alternative suspects in the trial, and we do not know how most of them were cleared. 
we will only name those people whose names have been revealed in police reports. And all information we reveal will be backed up by documents that are currently available to the public. A few quick guidelines though. First, please, please respect the rules of this portion of our podcast. Remember, these men have not been charged with this crime. Please do not contact any of the people named. Please do not harass any people named privately or on their social media. The sole purpose of this portion of the show is to first reveal that a thorough investigation was not conducted. People were cleared seemingly with no rhyme or reason. And second, to highlight the fact that after 1998, the sole focus of all the investigative reports was to indict and convict Jamie Snow. As you move through these episodes, remember, no alternative suspects were presented by Jamie's defense. We will present the information and you decide whether they should have investigated these men further. But first, a word from Jamie on this issue. Yet you draw a parallel from that to 
my ex-wife Tammy, who I was with on the night of the crime, and they just expect her to remember every single detail of the day 10 years later. And it's just amazing to me uh, how much of a contradiction that seems to be. So we'll see what happens. I'm really hoping that we get some testing done. Perhaps we'll get a match to somebody that's in all of these documents. So that's just my thoughts on the uh, suspect. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snow Files merch. The first lead we received on Isaac Gaston was his mugshot. It was about 10 years ago when Jamie and Tam were going back and forth about the case details, and he sent her a picture of a lead. It was only a mugshot, nothing else. No police report, no name, no information connected to it. But it looked almost exactly like the composite created by Gutierrez on the night of the crime. You can see the picture posted on the episode page. The resemblance is stunning. So we put it out there. We got a couple of anonymous tips who identified the person in the mugshot. Isaac Gaston, also known as Ike. His name was also revealed in FOIA lead sheets several years later. We discovered five leads related to Gaston. The first lead was within two days of the crime, according to the leads index. However, it appears that Officer Irvin assigned the lead to Detective Crow and Ronfeld, two days after that on April 4, 1991. The lead was from an unknown person, and stated the composite looks like Gaston, and that Gaston lives on North Roosevelt Street, south of Locust Street, in an apartment on the west side of the street, off a front porch, and there was a for sale sign in the yard. It would be about a three-minute drive and about a 20-minute walk from the Clark Oil Station. But here's the problem. North Roosevelt Street is north of Locust Street. South Roosevelt is south of Locust Street but only a five-minute drive and about a 35-minute walk from the Clark Oil Station. Both are close. But which is it? Either way, pretty close, right? Another lead comes in on April 2nd by phone. The information received. Little girl sees composite in newspaper and says, Why is my daddy's picture in the paper? Whoever the woman caller called Crime Stoppers to report this. Girl's father reportedly Gaston lives North Roosevelt at Locust, for sale sign in yard, west side front apartment. On April 2nd, another tip was submitted stating that Gaston looks like the composite. A police officer submitted a lead stating that on the day after the crime, on April 1st, 1991, at 8.15 p.m., he was at the Clark Station on Market in Madison and observed somebody that looked like the composite. I was checking the Clark Station on Market in Madison when I observed a white male approximately five foot six, blonde hair and mustache, approximately 165 to 170 pounds, inside the station. His description matched the composite, with the exception of the scar on his chin. His name was Redacted. He stated he lived on North Roosevelt. He stated that he hangs around the Clark Station frequently, and that they know him in there. I looked in records for a photo, but I was unable to locate one. It may be nothing, but he did resemble the composite enough for me to talk to him. 
Maybe somebody may be able to locate a photo and check him out. Thanks. There is no date on the police report, so we're not sure when this was reported. We do know, however, that all of these leads on Gaston came in within the first few days of the crime. But it wasn't until nearly two months later, on May 25, 1991, Ronfeld made contact with Gaston. He was described in the report as being 6'1", 152 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes, no pierced ear, no scar, and states that he has no access to a gun. On Easter Sunday, Gaston stated that at approximately 5 p.m., brought his daughter over to see him, and she stayed for about 10 minutes. After that, Gaston stated he could not remember if he stayed in or otherwise. Photo taken. Cleared pending new information. How was he cleared? He had no alibi for the evening of March 31st. Gaston can't remember what he did after his daughter left at around 5.10 p.m. The silent alarm at the Clark station didn't go off until around 8.15 p.m. And they let that slide? Did they talk to Did they talk to his daughter? We don't know because the five pages following this report are completely redacted. Despite multiple leads within days of the crime pointing to Gaston, and despite the fact that Gaston looked exactly like Gutierrez's composite, created the day after the crime, it took Bloomington police nearly two months to interview him. And again, how is it that Gaston remembers that he saw his daughter at 5 p.m. for 10 minutes on Easter Sunday, but he doesn't remember what he did on Easter Sunday after his daughter left? Isaac, Ike, Gaston, is 67 years old as of 2021. At the time of the Clark Oil murder, he was 36. Although the first public record on the McLean County Public Access website begins in 1992, according to newspaper archives, he was charged with forging a check and cashing it at a bank as early as 1973, when Gaston was 18. He eventually pled guilty to forging and cashing two checks, one for $45 and the other for $50 in 1974. And although the plea agreement called for a prison sentence of one to three years, it included the opportunity for Gaston to seek probation. But the judge opted for the one to three years in prison at sentencing, and Gaston threatened to kill himself. As he was let out of the courtroom, he attempted to break away from the sheriff and was forced to the floor by the sheriff, the bailiff, and a probation officer, and then handcuffed. By 1978, Gaston was 23 years old, and back on the streets. This time he was charged with taking indecent liberties with a child in an incident involving a 13-year-old girl. That charge was dismissed in a plea bargain, and the charge was reduced to contributing to the sexual delinquency of a child. He was sentenced to 60 days with credit for time served. In July of that same year, a wedding announcement from the parents of the bride appeared in the newspaper. A September wedding was planned for Isaac. In May of 1979, Stanley Jolly was walking on East Front Street at about 12.30 a.m. when he was accosted and robbed by seven males, including a 16-year-old boy. The robbery yielded $6 and an eventual three-year prison sentence for Gaston for unlawful restraint. He was acquitted of the robbery and battery charges. But while Gaston was in McLean County Jail awaiting sentencing for the unlawful restraint conviction, he threw a mixture of shaving cream and urine 
at four correction officers. One of the guards was hospitalized for chemical burns to his eyes. Police said the attack was unprovoked, and other inmates in the cell block refused to return to their cells for lockup until backup forces arrived. Meanwhile, Gaston threatened guards with a homemade weapon of soap bars twisted up in a sock. He received four years for aggravated battery and three concurrent 364-day sentences on three battery convictions. So far, it's only been six years since Gaston turned 18. Busy guy, huh? Gaston appealed his sentence, and the appellate court ruled in his favor, stating that the consecutive sentences were improper because no justification was given. They kicked it back to the good old McLean County judge, who handed down the exact same sentence, but said he was including the magic words, in the public interest, referring to the justification required by the higher court. I guess Gaston got a bit of good time, because he was back in McLean County in 1983 on charges of disorderly conduct and criminal damage to property, and then again in 1984, where he pled guilty to a fertilizer firm burglary. We're not sure what sentence Gaston received, but he was back on the streets apparently by September of 1987 when he caught another battery charge, but the charge was dropped six months later because the complaining witness had disappeared. Gaston was charged in August of 1988 with raping a woman he knew after keeping her from leaving her residence, but it isn't clear what became of those charges. A year later, he was charged with obstructing a peace officer, fleeing and attempting to elude a peace officer, driving while license suspended, and additional minor charges. In February of 1990, he was fined $100 and sentenced to four months probation for all of those charges. Does that sentence seem kind of light to any of you, considering his criminal history? Is your snitch radar going off right now? A couple of years later, in 1992, Gaston was arrested and charged with burglary and theft for snatching a purse from a woman in a parking lot. The purse contained $40. Those charges were dismissed because the jury didn't return an indictment. Between 1993 and 2010, Gaston was charged with many crimes. And the odd thing is, there really is no pattern to them. I guess. Except he seemed to be a violent person and disregarded boundaries. He had several traffic charges, ranging from no insurance to driving on a suspended license. A few disorderly criminal conducts, criminal damage to property, and obstruction of justice, for which he received four months in jail and two years probation in 1994 for giving a phony name to police when he was caught driving on a suspended license. But there are also more serious charges. For example, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, unlawful restraint, criminal sexual abuse and force, and multiple order of protection violations. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of information on these charges. Many of them were dismissed, including the criminal sexual abuse charge, and he also pled guilty to many of them. But Gaston would not be sentenced to prison again, at least not in McLean County, where he only received sporadic jail sentences and probation. A lot. It's very suspicious, considering his violent and consistent criminal history. What we do know, though, is that he looks remarkably like the composite. He lived within a mile of the crime scene, and he has an extensive, extremely violent criminal record. And most importantly, he has no alibi for Easter Sunday, 1991, after 5.30 in the evening. How was he cleared by police? 
Police noted he didn't have an earring or chin scar. But then neither did Jamie, right? Maybe the answer is in the completely redacted pages following the tip. Hopefully, the disclosure of the 8,000 documents withheld from Jamie will reveal those answers. You can view and read the newspaper articles, police reports, and graphics related to this episode on the episode page at snowfiles.net. Let us know what you think. And don't forget to give Snowfiles Podcast a five-star rating on Apple or Podchaser for you Android users. Every rating puts us higher on the charts, gets us more traffic, and helps us get the word out about Jamie's case. Someone knows something. We invite any witness featured on the Snowfiles podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. Isaac Gaston, or Ike, a violent felon with a rap sheet a mile long, lived within a few blocks of the Clark Station and looked just like the description Gutierrez gave to the police to create the composite. The similarities are uncanny. Police obviously believed Gutierrez because his composite was the only one released the next day to the newspapers. Martinez's composite was largely ignored at the time, and it was not released until nearly three years later, despite the recommendation of police spokesperson Og, who stated to the press at the time that releasing an additional composite is contrary to FBI guidelines. As for how police cleared Gaston, we don't know because the five pages following the lead are completely redacted. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Since this information had never been presented to the jury, they had no reason to think someone else may have murdered a bill. But we know the state was aware of alternative suspects because they sent us these leads through FOIA. They had this information all along and never disclosed it. We can't wait to share our second suspect with you. That's next time on Snowfiles.